Welcome to How Books Are Made, a podcast about the art and science of making books. I'm Arthur Atwell. Those of us lucky enough to speak more than one language often appreciate how much different languages offer us different ways of looking at the world. As they say, there's probably a German word for the feeling of finding a German word for a feeling. Invention itself has always flourished where languages, cultures or disciplines intersect. And those special enough to live at the intersections do remarkable things. Not least because languages, cultures and disciplines divide us so cruelly and those who bridge those divides might help us find each other. As a bookmaker, I wonder sometimes if it's any surprise that some of our world's greatest divides fall along the fault lines of alphabetic scripts. One bookmaker I've long admired for living and working at the intersections of languages, cultures and disciplines is the warm, insightful, hilarious dynamo Rami Habib. Born in Egypt, He grew up in Bahrain and Canada, taught in Japan, and has worked in Egypt, England and Scotland. And he's earned more accolades than a podcast intro can accommodate. I met Rami in 2007, when he was heading up Kota Baraber, the first Arabic-language e-book publishing company in the Middle East. That feels like a very long time ago. Rami Habib, we speak at last. It's been too long. How are you doing? Oh, it's amazing. Uh, the last time we spoke, Arthur, uh, I didn't have glasses and or children. <laughs> so now all that has changed. And the last time we saw each other, we were walking around Edinburgh in the middle of the night. Uh, you're still in Edinburgh, right? I am. I am. I, we moved here uh, in 2013, and I'm planning on dying here. <laughs> that's, that's the goal. We all need ambition, and that's my goal, right? So... Yeah, it's a good place to to see out your days. Yeah, that brings me to the question I wanted to ask first. I was trying to make a list of all the cities that you've lived in that I know about, and I've got Cairo in Bahrain. Was that Manama? Manama. I was actually in Adlia, but I mean, it's one. It's basically one big city. It's so small. So yeah. I, I was in Adlia, but uh, Manama is the capital, and. Uh, just for those of you who don't know, Bahrain is is a tiny desert island in the middle of uh, uh, in the Persian Gulf, and you can drive the entire circumference of the island in less than four hours. Wow, it's tiny. And then there was Montreal, yeah. uh, Okinawa, yeah, London, and Edinburgh. Have I missed any? Uh, well, I've spent significant time in Calgary and Toronto as well. And uh, I spent uh, about nine months in Turkey, in southern Turkey, in a small town, well, a small city, really, called Gaziantep. And uh, yeah, I, I think I think that's everything right there. Yeah. Uh, Edinburgh wins. Yeah. From, from the perspective of having kids and having a uh, family and all of that stuff, Edinburgh is an amazing place to be. And People always complain about the rain here, but I'm originally from Canada. Our weather tries to kill you. Right? <laughs> like, this weather is just inconvenient. Our weather will kill you if you're not ready. So I'm fine with the weather. The cities that you've lived in seem to seem to track your various professional pursuits. 
so I don't even know where to start. There is so much here. I remember you telling me a story about digitizing Arabic eBooks at Koto Barabia. And I know that's jumping in like in the middle of the story and there's stuff before that. Can you tell me a bit more about what it took to create eBooks at Koto Barabia? So I'll actually just start like one step before just to give it a bit of context, right? So when I left uh, Japan, I went back to Bahrain to take care of my dad. So Bahrain is obviously an Arab state and, I, you know, I, I have passable Arabic. I, I won't claim to be great. I'm decent enough at it. And um, while I was taking care of my dad, who was really sick at the time, I was trying to look for something to do. And this was in 2003 or late 2002 or uh, 2003. And at that time, there was one ebook company out there. It was called ebooks.com, if I remember correctly. And I I got this idea. I was like, oh my God, right? You know, ebooks are the thing. And then, by the way, at this time, it was PDFs, right? There was no EPUB or Mobi or any of that stuff. And I was like, ah, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll digitize Arabic content and we'll distribute it throughout the world. And basically my idea was to create a Kindle store for Arabic. That was my idea. And uh, I happened to, to meet a, a few people who were investors in the company. And we wound up moving the company to Egypt because if you know anything about the Arabic publishing landscape, you know, you kind of got these hubs and Cairo is one of them and where I'm originally from. And Lebanon's another one, Beirut, and you know, there's a few other places that have some great content. Of course, Iraq, but Iraq was not a place that we could, you know, realistically start a business. Uh, not unless I was willing to, you know, dust off my spy kits and whatnot. <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't feasible. And so we started to try to digitize the content. And at that time, the big thing was OCR, right? Because OCR was huge in English. OCR does not work in Arabic. I don't even think it works today, although I'm a little bit outdated in my information. I haven't really looked into it for about three years now, but as of three years ago, it certainly didn't work. I still think it doesn't work. So what we wound up doing was we created what was called the Beehive. And we literally got 130 typists in three shifts. Right. And so they were just three shifts, eight hour shifts, and they come in and they would type these books that we would bring them from various sources while we were trying to sell it to wherever. So creating a uh, B2C store didn't work. And we were kind of ahead of our time, but it was also just there was a lot of complications to to kind of the culture of online purchasing in the Middle East and stuff like that. So. So it, it just didn't work. So what we wound up doing was digitizing these massive volumes. So we, we shifted from current contemporary um, literature to primary text. So the Shakespeare's and Chaucer's of Arabic. And then we sold uh, collections to libraries and universities. So there's a good chance that if you have access to a library or a university uh, online content and there's Arabic content, that's from us. There's there's a fair chance that that's what you got. Fantastic. So, and I really kicked that off in about 2000 and 2005. May 5th, 2005 was our official uh, doors opening day. But obviously there's a lot that goes into getting to that point. And uh, I left the company, like kind of tied up. I, I didn't fully leave it like because I still have stake in it, but 
I walked away from the day-to-day operations of that company in 2011. Right. Wow. And the company, was it your first entrepreneurial venture? And what had you been doing before that? Yeah, it was my first entrepreneur. Before that, I was teaching English in Japan. But what I was really doing was trying to become a writer. Uh, basically, I was teaching English in Japan. And, and so the way the system was set up was because I was a foreign teacher, I was uninsurable, which meant that I couldn't do certain activities with the students. So as a result, I was told, please go to the library and study language and culture uh, during my free periods. And so I did. I went and I wrote every day and read every day. And in that period, I just kind of like honed my skills in that. And so when I started Kutubara Bea, it was actually because I wanted to learn more about publishing to get into the publishing world, into the writing world and stuff like that. But anyone who started a business, you just know that that just consumes you. Yeah. Right. It just takes over everything. So I kind of parked the writing for a while. Uh, and then in 2015, my wife told me she was pregnant. It wasn't that much of a surprise. We, we were trying like... You know, there was a happy moment, but I also came with this like, holy guacamole, I'm going to be a dad and I haven't written that book yet. And so I kind of put everything aside that I was working on and just started writing from that point forward. I want to come back to Japan and the writing, but just to stick with uh, Kotobara Bear a while, I remember we met in what felt like the early but meteoric days of Cosa Barabea where uh, we met in London a few years later again saw you at O'Reilly Tools of Change conference where you gave an amazing talk about publishing uh, in Egypt in the Arab world you talked about ISBNs in particular as a fascinating challenge Uh, what was the challenge then at the time well okay so, so I don't know how much into the weeds I I should get just in terms of how publishing works. I love the weeds. Let's do the weeds. Let's do the weeds. All right. So, so typically kind of in the traditional publishing model, uh, uh, you know, and I am kind of going into legacy issues of pre-computers kind of era. You know, what you did was you wanted to record everything that a book did and use the ISBN as the linchpin number. And so every book has a unique ISBN number. And this gives you a whole bunch of advantages because you're really able to track the life cycle of the book. But more importantly, you're actually able to attract, uh, track the ownership of a book because books have variety, go through a variety of iterations, right? So you have translations, you have different versions, you have uh, different distributors. And before kind of these global distribution networks, if I published my book in the UK, I'd use Publishing House A which had a certain ISBN behind it. But if I wanted to also get my book in the US, I needed to get another publisher in the US. Now, usually the UK publisher would sell those rights, right? And then, of course, it gets even more complicated if I want to sell a translated version of that book into Germany, right, for example, or or wherever, right? And every version gets its own ISBNs and you can kind of track it and figure out who the rights holders are. So in the Arab world, you don't have this, right? At least at that time, you didn't have it. I mean, it's better now, but it's still got a long way to go. And uh, as a result, we had a lot of challenges over kind of distributing books. 
the biggest challenge was uh, orphan books. Again, not to get too deep into the weeds, but their entire organizations built just on hunting down the rights owners of orphan books. Um, and so, so th there was all these issues with how to, how to get it done because quite literally in the Arab world, what would happen is a guy would publish it, a book, and then he'd work with a local distributor or a local publisher, right? Or he'd become that local publisher, whatever it was. And the distribution would be limited to what he could move on his own back. And so the average distribution range to a book in the Arab world in 2005, six, seven, in that era was about 10 miles. Hmm. Right? And, and we, we, as Kutub Arabeya, we actually studied this. We found the central point to books. And then we went to every bookstore we could find in all of Egypt. You know, I'm talking like little bookstore kiosks in beach resorts. <laughs> and we found the average book distribution was 10 miles. That was it. So when we started to come and say, let's do eBooks, that became a whole kettle of fish because how do we find the rights holders? How do, there's no ISBN there. So one of the projects that I had worked on and sad to say it, one of the failed projects I had worked on, to, truth be told, was trying to find a way to, with an impactful way, bring ISBNs into the Arab world because they were being used by some of the larger publishing houses, the more clued in publishers, but that was probably represented like 30 or 40% of the market. There was still a vast swaths just completely dead. Now, I don't, I, I would like to throw in a couple of caveats. I'm speaking Egypt here. Lebanon was a little bit more sophisticated. Iraq had been more sophisticated, but completely shut down pretty much. Um, Syria was a little bit more sophisticated, but kind of in between Lebanon and Egypt. That was another challenge is it, you know, there was different levels of sophistication. So you were having different kinds of levels of conversations, depending on which organization you're working with, which country you're working with, which publisher you're working with. And over the years, you consulted with a number of organizations or worked on a number of projects across all those countries. I did. I did. We did a project with the Abu Dhabi Book Fair. Uh, where we were trying to figure out rights holders. And um, uh, I remember there was like a German consultancy firm and I just remembered listening to their pitch and, and they literally compared the distribution of books to beer <laughs> in Abu Dhabi. And I was just like, guys, like, like, do you not understand the relationship the entire Arab world has with alcohol, <laughs> right? Like, is this really the best way to present this? But, oh, but good analogy. That shows you really understand what <laughs> it was. It was a challenge. It was a real challenge. Somehow in the midst of all of this, Casa uh, Barabea just seemed to keep growing. As you say, starting with, I think it's two people when you yeah, started three. out, grow to the heights of a hundred and something typists. How did that growth happen? What were you digitizing? What, was the, what are the kind of genres that were really working? Right. So when we left kind of contemporary literature, that's when it changed, right? So that was the big shift for us. So we left contemporary fiction, uh, well, and nonfiction, to be honest. We were, we were doing both, but um, I think most of our work was fiction at this point because we were looking to get like kind of those heavy hitter uh, novels that actually were being distributed beyond the 10 miles. Right? You know, and if it, you know, the theory being like, if it worked in Egypt, then it would hopefully work in Lebanon and Syria and, oh, you know, like Arabs living abroad and all of that stuff, right? So all of that stuff circled round to 
our main focus in the beginning, but uh, that just didn't work. And then I gave that speech at uh, the Tools of Change speech. And I got a phone call from a guy called Robert Lee. Uh, and I was like, Robert Lee has been dead for several hundred years. And <laughs> not from what I know of his background, not someone I really want to connect with. But I, I, I gave this Robert Lee a benefit of the doubt and I contacted him. And he was working for a company that distributed, that specialized in distributing non-Roman alphabet languages into libraries and universities uh, in the United States, Europe, even China and stuff like that. And so we started talking about that. And like, to be honest, it was so cumbersome trying to pay royalty rates for contemporary stuff that we started to look at primary text. And we realized that actually primary texts were even worse in terms of distribution than contemporary stuff because there was just a lot of, fall, of fallen or forgotten content out there. And so we started to digitize that content, create collections around that content and sell it to universities and libraries. And, and that went really well. And like I said, I, I went down to part-time in a 2000, it wasn't 2011, sorry, it was 2013. I, I think I said 11 at first, but it was actually 13. And then kind of really removed myself in 2015. I still have a little bit of connection with it all. I, uh, but I'm not, uh, I'm not in the weeds anymore. Yeah. I, I seem to remember at some stage, things were really tough for Kota Parabea. Oh yeah. What happened there? I know that essentially political change in Egypt had an effect on you guys. Yeah. So there were a couple hard points in in the journey of it and so what happened was that well the arab spring right was the the initial shot so with the arab spring like at that point things were going pretty well we were actually looking into opening up an office in syria and then the arab spring kicked off so that that was done right um we were also looking into creating um mobile digitization centers so we were, we, we had developed, I mean, it was fairly crude, but it was one of those things that we had hoped over time, the prototypes would get more advanced, but we had developed these crude on the field digitization systems, right? So effectively it was a 10 megapixel camera on, on, you know, those, remember those old projectors? Yeah. So what we just kind of rebuilt it so that, you know, people could go into the field with these things and then find content from all over. So it's sad because like the whole political situation didn't allow this to happen, but it's, this is a few years old. So forgive me if I get the details a little bit wrong, but there was a Benedictian monastery in kind of the Delta region of Egypt, and it was pretty isolated. And it had thousands of books that only existed in this one library. And so we had spoken to these guys and um, it was hilarious. Like, I, I, I'm going to tell you, like, I'll tell you a couple details of the story. Doesn't sound true. Even I repeating it, I'm telling you, like, like I would be listening to this and be like, this guy is full of crap. So we sent our, one of our guys to go to this monastery to see if they would agree to let us digitize the books. And the only way he could get there is on a donkey cart. Okay, that was the only mode. Of, I mean, I'm sure there could have been other carts driven by other animals, or he could have walked. 
But he, in particular, was on a donkey cart getting to this monastery. And, and, and this is like 2009, right? You know, or eight. You know, this isn't, I'm not talking about 50 years ago. I'm talking about 10 years ago. And um, so he went up there and he had to kind of negotiate with it. And so he'd go and negotiate and come back and then go again and negotiate and come back and stuff like that. And then finally, on the last day that he had negotiated, he goes, ah, ah, I think I did it. And we're like, did you get the contract? He's like, no. But on the way to the monastery, I saw a dead lion. And I'm sure that's a sign. And we went, there are no lions in each. <laughs> so I don't know what he saw. That's fantastic. But this was, you know, this was the, I'm sure he saw a dead something, right? You know, uh, maybe it was a lion. Uh, there were lions once upon a time. I just don't think there are any more wild lions in each. So <laughs> anyway, sure enough, we got the contract. Like that was like, he was right. I mean, sign or not, like, we got the contract, but it, it was never executed. It's simply because Arab Spring kicked off. Then we had to really contract, hold our fort down. We had invested a lot in kind of going into Syria and other places. And that just kind of fell apart as well. And also we had a sister organization which digitized content for um, companies like Nielsen and Coca-Cola and stuff where they were looking at uh, questionnaires and field studies basically on for mostly for marketing and advertising and so that that business just it just fell off the cliff for for a long time so yeah the, these were things so it took a few years to kind of build things back up and you know from the easy outside where i am we look at the arab spring and it's usually cast with this rosy glow of this you know wonderful yeah. change in the arab world and i'm sure much of that is true, but it's fascinated me always that there was this big downside for your business. How do those dynamics work? Why does something as celebrated as the Arab Spring actually end up being your biggest challenge? So it was a lot of things working at once, right? For example, um, it was uncertainty. Right. So so even though in in Egypt in particular, there was that 18 day protest and then Mubarak stepped down, there was then months of debates and fights and protests and whatnot that would just kind of crumble everything. And then, of course, in Syria, it, it just never like Egypt regained stability really quickly. Syria just kept going and going and going and going. Right. Now it's still going on today uncertainty killed so much so then we started looking at like so for example because of the uncertainty we needed to work on the activities that we knew paid but then when with the sister organization they weren't doing studies because they weren't willing to invest like uh, at this moment so they were freezing everything as well and, and, and then as a result of this and it's obviously not just our businesses that had this problem but um, then you had a currency freeze, right? Which all of a sudden meant we had difficulty paying vendors outside of Egypt for various activities. And then if we brought the money into Egypt for anything that we did, right? Like we couldn't get it out again, you know? So, so we'd have to just bring in what would pay the salaries and what would pay for the, the local operations. 
the other thing was we we lost real talent in it because we had you know numerous employees who were like key members of the team who wanted and needed to go do something else right and um with that change they came to so for example like we had uh, the the guy who basically built all our uh systems our our websites and so, like bespoke software that we were using and he was the guy who just kind of built it all it, we, we had a very good and happy relationship uh, he wanted to go back to the village that he grew up in after this event and then working remotely just didn't work we tried for a while but it didn't work so we we had to bring in other people who would figure out the coding to fix anything that broke along the way and stuff so you know it was like death from a thousand um paper cuts mm. it wasn't any one thing it was a, a a myriad of little things like so for example just as a you know death from a thousand paper cuts we were going to go negotiate with the i guess it was the minister like again these are long time ago so i i, I struggle kind of remembering it but i believe it was the ministry of culture to do something we were bidding on a government tender and uh, so anyone who's ever been on government tenders, you have deadlines, you got to submit things, there's a system. And, you know, and especially in Egypt, you know, you, you're submitting these like folders of information that you spend hours, days working on just to, to, to give it. Mm. And we couldn't, we missed the deadline because there were protests on the way to the ministry that we couldn't actually physically get to that ministry. Wow. And so we had asked for an extension and they had agreed, but the, another company who had got in basically because they were on the other side of the Nile, we were on this side, they were on that <laughs> side, you know, like they didn't have to go through the protest, uh, uh, streets, uh, they, they won and, you know, maybe they had the better file, whatever, but we kind of looked at it when they delivered on time and they had a good proposal. And even though we got a slight extension, all those little things worked in their favor and against us. Mm. Now, it, maybe maybe we would have lost it anyway, sure. But it's a, it's an illustrative example of the challenges that we consistently faced in that post-revolution uh, times. Yeah, that's amazing. And then, you know, once that got harder and harder and you moved away from that side of the business, yeah. you essentially had to rebuild in some new direction. What was next? Well, so we, we, I started doing more kind of consultancy and like working in the Middle East and stuff like that. So that, you know, so I was still with the company in that sense. Uh, and then we basically just tried to leverage our existing collections at a higher level. And then slowly the business started to come back, like the multinational companies started to invest more. So, so that slowly started to come. It was really about just weathering the storm mm. and kind of building any bridges we could while the storm was going on. And then once all that kind of cleared up, it, it started to return. But at this point, you know, I had spent so many years into the company and so much time and effort into the company. I was like, okay, it's time to do something else. So this was the point where it, once the company kind of breathed again and was stable again, mm. that was when I, I felt comfortable to do the next thing. Yeah. Now costing my, our minds back to Okinawa. Yeah. <laughs> Looking up at, on what you've done over the years, I came across the Atama e books uh, series, yeah. which just looks fantastic. 
And I assume there's some connection to your Japanese English teaching. Yeah. Tell me more about that. So Atama-E was a company, or is a company, I should say, that is started by uh, Marcos Benavides. I, I hope, uh, what do you call it? I'm not butchering his last name. I, I just know him as Marcus. Um, and he's a university professor in uh, in Tokyo. But at the time that I was teaching English at a high school, he was also teaching English in another high school. I had left, but he had stayed and kind of built himself up there. And at a certain point, he took a look around at some of the challenges that students were having uh, in learning English. And he went, it's boring. <laughs> so it's boring to learn another, especially the way the Japanese teach English in, in school. Like, I mean, as someone, at least, I mean, I shouldn't speak, maybe it's different now, but when I was there, it was, it was like, you know, they, they once asked us, you know, is this a good textbook? And the answer universally was to kill cockroaches. Yes. For anything else. <laughs> no. Right. You know, like it was, it's just like, hello, how are you? You know, and 15 year olds aren't interested in this. Right. Yeah. So he came up with this idea of writing a choose your own adventure story where the idea is, um, you choose your own adventure, right? And and but there's repetition in the language. So in going through this adventure and the various outcomes of this adventure, you're being exposed to phrases and vocabulary again and again and again and again. And he he asked me to write a book for it. Uh, so I wrote Hunter in the Darkness because as you know, vampires, I love it, right? And uh, uh, my book won an award. And I'm paraphrasing here, but the judge basically said something akin to, I would be remiss not to nominate this book. This was during the nomination fee, uh, phase because it is a student favorite, but it is certainly not anything I would enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> I read some of it this morning and it is, it's, it's wild. It's fun. And just such a great idea. Just choose your own adventure books to learn a language just blows me away. You know, in some ways, it's a complete transition from Cotabara Bay and everything you did there. But in another way, it's this space you seem to inhabit be between languages and cultures and places. I just find that really interesting that that seems to be uh, where you really seem to shine. Yeah, it was it was an awesome project. And, and prior to that, I had worked on another project with, uh, an, again, another um, English teacher in Japan where we did uh, a murder mystery and uh, I wrote and voiced the characters because it, it was a little animation series. I forget the lines now, but it was like, I needed to find out who killed Brad Pitter. And it was all about Brad Pitter being murdered. <laughs> and I mean, and then in, in the end, he wasn't murdered. He was just visiting his aunt or something like that. Right. But there was blood. That was it wasn't blood. It was jam. It was that kind of stuff. So so we. I, I think that the space I've always occupied uh, and I still occupy is kind of like somewhat disruptive ways to learn or to engage with content is what I've always kind of gravitated towards. And certainly living in the multiple cultures has been quite useful for it. Uh, another project that I also worked on, but that unfortunately that one never took off. Uh, but it was, a, it was the one that I loved the most. I, I wish it had was, so again, you have to remember, this is like 2004, but we were looking at rap songs specifically, like or, or pop songs, let's say, and then translating the pop songs in a meaningful way 
to people who didn't speak English, you know, you know, because rap songs or pop songs, they're playing with the language. Right. And so you're getting that. And that, that was an awesome one. But uh, ultimately that got buried in rights because lyrics and whatnot were very difficult to negotiate and still are very difficult to negotiate. So, yeah, no, it was a, it was, it was a fun project. And these days, what are you working on most? Yeah. So these days, actually, I, I finally transitioned into what I've always wanted to do. And so a, a big part of my focus is writing fiction now. And I've written numerous novels in uh, my own universe called The Gone God World. And I, and I have several co-authors who were all writing in The Gone God World as well. And basically the premise is, is that one day the gods, all of them, they leave and they exile all their denizens down onto Earth. So uh, minotaurs, centaurs, oni demons, fairies, fae, like basically every mythical creature from every tradition imaginable are suddenly living amongst us. And, you know, I have a minotaur who's like, I used to guard the, the labyrinth of Minos. Now I deliver pizza. You know, a story set in this universe with all these mythical creatures and humans trying to get along. And it really does play on the cl clash of cultures, you know, because all the different species of myth have different ways to interact and engage. You know, one of my best short stories follows a jackal guard. So if you know Egyptian mythology, a jackal guard is like one of Anubis's dudes, right? His, his name was uh, Ao, which I'm sure in ancient Egyptian meant something it's like saying paul <laughs> but to us it's owl right and he's a real mythical creature and you know he's sitting there in his uh crappy apartment looking out of his kitchen window and watching this father just really be borderline abusive to his child and sitting there going is this how humans raise their children because it doesn't seem very nice like you know the, there's that cultural disconnect and mm. in the story he figures out that no this is not how humans raise their kids and that this father is an ass and intervenes and he's like i, I can no longer protect Ra, but i can protect this child nice and it's all stories like that that sounds brilliant are these things we can find are they already published or are they still on the way yeah it's all on amazon i do publish under rami vance not rami habib uh vance is my middle name oh. So I, I wanted to separate the Arabic publishing from a series of books about the gods leaving. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Rami, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I've loved hearing those stories again and some ones I'd never heard before. And I am looking forward to discovering the Rami Vance books. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Please make sure you subscribe and it would be such a help if you'd tell a friend about the show. Also, don't forget to send us your own bookmaking topics and conundrums at howbooksaremade.com, where I'll also post links to things we talked about today. How Books Are Made is supported by Electric Bookworks, where my team and I make books all day, every day, in mostly sunny Cape Town, South Africa.